I do believe humanity's been brought to this point uh, in order to make a larger contribution, but I don't think it's guaranteed. I think we're at a hinge point of history right now. Um, first of all, to preserve the Earth and to improve life on Earth for everyone on the Earth. And then secondly, to, to do a better job in the solar system uh, so that we don't have to run backward and correct all the mistakes we've made. And, you know, uh, you know we, don't, we don't have to make all those mistakes. And the whole point of the Human Space Program project is to have the debate now with foresight rather than as we're doing with Columbus with hindsight. This is a space for authentic conversations around indigenous wisdom, consciousness, and wonder. We dance with the big questions like who are we, why are we here, and how do we contribute to a more peaceful and harmonious society? How do we live authentically and fully alive? I want to thank you for joining me in reverence and gratitude today to explore the wonder of the spectacular cosmos that we're all so fortunate to be a part of. I'm Jared Angaza, and this is Noetic. Today, I've got a very special show for you. Uh, this one is something that I've been uh, waiting to do for a long time, and this has been a big buildup. Uh, today, I'm interviewing Frank White. He's been a longtime hero of mine, and it's a, quite an honor to have him on the show today. And I have so many questions and ideas and all kinds of things Frank and I have been talking about for ages, and I uh, wanted to have the chance to sit here and talk to him with you guys in, in front of this audience uh, so you can hear some of the things that have inspired me along the way in my journey as well. And Frank has certainly inspired scores of people across the world, especially in the space discussion and, and the, the discussion of space philosophy. Um, and I want to introduce him today. I'm going to read you a little bit about some of the things that he's done, and then we're just going to jump right into it because he has a biography that is uh, about a mile long and worth every little word of reading. So I want to get into it. He's done some really amazing stuff. Um, he's a longtime advocate of human space exploration, and that's what I know him of uh, most. He's attended two, two space shuttle flights. He spoke to NASA employees at Marshall Flight Center in 1988 on the topic of the overview effect uh, as a spinoff of the space program. He's also served as a volunteer consultant to President Reagan's National Commission on Space, chaired by NASA Director Thomas Paine, and he wrote a portion of the final report. Frank is a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he's authored or co-authored numerous books, uh, 13 now, I think on the, the topics ranging from space exploration to climate change to artificial intelligence. Frank's best known for his work the over, on the overview effect, uh, space exploration and human evolution. 
and it's considered to be uh, his seminal work in the field of space and exploration. There's a film called The Overview, uh, or Overview, based largely on his work, and it's had nearly 8 million plays on Vimeo. I'm going to stop there because that is the video that I saw that after reading the overview effect, I saw the over, I saw overview and thought they did such a great job of kind of articulating some of the essence of the book. And it really moved me. And I was so excited to see a piece of media coming out like that, that could reach a younger audience and so on uh, that maybe wouldn't have read the book or didn't know about the book or whatever. And I felt like that kind of uh, really pushed a lot of it, the discussion into the mainstream, uh, which I think is so important. Uh, Frank's been, behind the scenes on so many things over the years that have influenced our lives. Uh, and I, I was excited to see some of that come into the forefront of the media. And then after that, you know, came the full length film planetary, uh, which was also very, very inspirational to me. And I've, I've, uh, talked about it a lot. It was a big inspiration for me doing this podcast uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was around the same time that I met Frank via phone. And I actually have, we've never met face to face yet, but we've had scores of uh, phone calls over the last year. And I'll go ahead and say this too, because who knows, this might speak to someone too, but Frank was just a hero of mine, period. That was it. I was reading his stuff. I was very inspired by him. And I thought, man, this guy has really impacted my life. Everything I talk about comes back to some discussion and overview effect. So I looked him up uh, on the Harvard website, found his email, emailed him, said, hey, I really appreciate you. I think I looked you up on Facebook too and, uh, and connected with you there just to say, hey, I really appreciate you. That's it. And that, I wasn't asking for anything. And Frank said, hey, we should talk. And I thought, wow, <laughs> you don't get to talk to your heroes that often. I'd love to. So we had an had a, uh, initial conversation over the phone and then it's just been a, a, a budding friendship ever since and have uh, had the opportunity to, to talk to Frank about it some of the stuff he's doing now and, and the stuff he hopes to do here in the future and new books coming out and things like that. So without further ado, I want to thank you, Frank, for uh, coming and spending some time with me on the show. Well, thanks, Jared. It's great to be here. I'm glad you got in touch with me. And, uh, you know, when people get in touch, I do try to respond because I appreciate it when people read my books or see the overview film and are inspired in some way. And I feel like my life is really not only about writing more books, but really supporting people who care about what I'm trying to say. And um, I'm not sure I'm comfortable being a hero, but uh, I have to say I have my own heroes and they're the astronauts. And there would be no book, no overview effect, none of that if people hadn't risked their lives to go out into the universe and come back with this really profound message. And I, I've called the overview effect a message from the universe to humanity about who we are and where we are and where we're going. So that's my life. And it's, it's really something I think bigger than myself. It, it is actually, I think I'm part of, a uh, process of sharing that knowledge and I don't own it. Um, I, I didn't really start it. I'm really standing on the shoulders of giants as uh, I believe it was Newton who said that. And uh, again, I have my giants, uh, the astronauts and 
I have to say, science fiction writers who also inspired me back as a kid to think about these things. I had a friend that did this the other day, and, and I'm going to do it to you now, because <laughs> it was such a, a cool way to start off. Uh, and he, he asked me in an interview, uh, who are your gurus? He and I both felt like you can learn a lot about people, you know, from who it is that they admire, who are they following, and so on. So it's interesting you started off with that. Tell me a little bit about some of your gurus and heroes, people that you follow that have inspired you to do the work that you do. Very good question. Well, <clears throat> Again, going back to the uh, science fiction writers, you know, uh, Isaac Asimov was certainly one of them, and he combined two of the interests that I have followed throughout my life, and that's space exploration and robots or artificial intelligence. He put the two things together in some of his work, and so... When I first started getting interested in space exploration, I believe one of the first books I read of science fiction was by Isaac Asimov. But in any case, one of the first ones was definitely by him. So it was quite a thrill when I was asked to co-author a couple of books with him. And a lot of people are far more impressed with that than the fact that I wrote something called The Overview Effect. That, oh, you wrote a book with Isaac Asimov because... Uh, there are astronauts who've also mentioned that he inspired them. So definitely he would be one. Um, a big fan. On the spiritual side, a true guru is Ram Dass. Uh, you probably know about him. Yeah, so Ram Dass was a, um, uh, he was a professor at Harvard when I was a freshman. And he wasn't called Ram Dass. Uh, at the time. Um, and uh, I walked into the freshman union one morning to have breakfast. And somebody said to me, Leary and Alpert just got fired. And I said, who are Leary and Alpert? And they said, they're these two psychology professors. They've been giving undergraduates LSD. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly who you're talking about. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, you know, later on, um, uh, he wrote a book called Be Here Now, which is really pretty profound. And uh, so, I mean, he, he in a way, was a guru for many years. Um, and, you know, I actually do have a strong spiritual life. And I, I really have to include Jesus and Buddha in there. Um, definitely, I've learned a lot from them. And... Uh, so uh, they've certainly been gurus. And then on the, um, on the space exploration side, there are so many astronauts who, because they responded to me, they helped this book to happen. And there really are too many of them to, uh, to mention. But I would mention Edgar Mitchell. You know, Edgar Mitchell had one of the most profound experiences out there. And he is one of the astronauts who came back and really struggled with a way to put it into a coherent philosophy. And he also was very supportive of me from the beginning. Uh, he was a founding member of the Overview Institute. And I just admired his way of thinking about his experience and articulating it 
and I've gone back over and over again, and I've quoted him. You know, um, I've had I've I've quoted him because his precision in describing what happened to him out there was so accurate, and and uh, I think every time I've reread my interview with him, I've learned something new. I'm a big, big fan of, of Mitchell and, and for a lot of the, probably the same reasons and that I, I felt like he, he was one of those ones that just said, you know, I had, I had a spiritual experience and I'm not, I'm not going to stop talking about it. <laughs> I'm not going to stop exploring it. I, w- I was happy to see that he was really pushing that agenda in this space philosophy discussion and, and just space discussion in general. Uh, and, and yeah, I followed him a lot. Uh, and, and I, probably would think that most of my entry into that into understanding him was through your work as well i really appreciate his uh contribution to this discussion you know it's interesting uh he tended to not say directly it was spiritual when he described it it sounded spiritual and when he went in if you watch the overview film when he went and asked some people what they thought he had experienced they called it samadhi, which is a spiritual term. So being a scientist and uh, being interested in scientific explanations, he tended not to call it a spiritual or religious experience, but then when he described it, it certainly sounded that way. So (laughs) very interesting. Uh, Anyway, you know, I have to, when we talk about people who made a contribution here, I really have to mention my mother, who uh, gave me a little book called Stars when I was 10 years old. It's a little book about astronomy. It's still published. And it really blew my mind. I just thought, wow, look at what's out there. i got to find out more. And it's remarkable in the sense that I'm hard put to say this, but I hadn't really thought about planets and stars and things like that until I was 10 and got that book, you know, and again, you, you never quite know how you're going to influence someone or what you're going, what you're going to write that's going to influence someone. So I guess I'd call my mother one of my gurus in that sense. She knew what I needed at the time. (laughs) That's great. Well, hey, let, since you're there, let me ask you this, because I, I'd like to, to go back a little bit and start with your first moments of kind of being swept away by the wonder of space and having started, you know, started to get that desire in you to, to be, um, to study that, to be involved in that discussion and so on. I mean, even if you were 10 years old or whatever, but to, to look at like, where did that love of the space discussion, uh, come into your life and, and what was it kind of welling up in you that made it seem so important? Well, I have to say my first cousin who I spent a lot of time with as a child has told me, you know, that when I was three years old, I was telling her, you know, uh, and we're not going to be able to stay on this planet forever. We're going to have to leave and go live on other planets. And according to her, I was talking about that as a little kid. Um, where did that come from? I have no idea. Uh, and I don't remember it, but 
I do remember what happened when I got that little book, which is that I immediately wanted to go out and look at the night sky with binoculars. I was fascinated. Really, I guess it started with astronomy, um, learning about the constellations, learning about the planets, wanting to look at them. And again, to me, what was exciting was the open-endedness of it, if you will. There was no end to the universe as far as I could see. And therefore, I could get involved in it at any level that I wanted to. And I'm, I'm reminded of Elon Musk, who one of the things he says about what he's trying to do that people don't quote very often, he says, you know, I'm just really excited to think about being a multi-planet species and being out there and exploring the universe instead of just staying here on Earth and waiting for some catastrophic event. Um, I mean, I'm not opposed to staying on the Earth, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, in my book, I write about people who will become stewards of the Earth and keep it going. It's a precious uh, place for us. But I do get the idea of excitement, and I think a lot of people who are interested in space exploration are really responding to that excitement that we don't have to obey or stay with the old ways of doing things. We can create new civilizations and new societies and new lifestyles. Um, and I just felt so much of that at the age of 10. And that was one of the beginnings of that feeling. And then another time I remember is 1957 when the Soviets launched Sputnik. That was similar in that I, I really remember starting to write about it at, I guess I was uh, 13 or 14 at that point. I'm sorry I've lost all those writings, but that was kind of the beginning of really wanting to understand the meaning of human space exploration. What does all this mean? It's exciting, that's true, but what does it mean to us and to the universe, and what's the point of all of this? So, you know, that happened. And then the other thing I would mention in terms of history is the Apollo era, because at that point, I was in college and in graduate school, and again, these profound things were happening, and I was wondering, how can I contribute to this, not being an engineer, not being a scientist, not being an astronomer? Um, you know, I had, I had been admitted to the Air Force Academy and had seriously considered going there and becoming an astronaut. Um, I had chosen Harvard instead. And so the route into space was not clear for me. And, and once again, another uh, specific moment. And a, Oh, another guru <laughs> I just thought of is Gerard K. O'Neill. I was kind of desperate in the 70s to figure this question out. Where do I fit? How do I make a contribution? What do I do? And um, 
I discovered Gerard O'Neill and his work. And again, that was very much like that little book, except now it focused on the human side. Oh, we can build these freestanding space settlements. Oh, social scientists, philosophers, artists, everybody can be involved in that. You don't have to be an astronaut. You don't have to be a pilot. You don't have to be a technical person. And that opened things up again, you know, and then that was directly contributory to my epiphany that led to the overview effect because I was flying cross, cross country and really thinking about what would it be like to live in a space settlement? What would that be like? And looking down at the earth from the airplane for quite a few hours, I had the notion, well, you would always have an overview. You would always see the earth from a distance. And uh, of course, at that point, we had experienced earth rise. We had experienced seeing the earth from a distance through the eyes of the astronauts. But this question was, what would it be like if that were constantly the case? Um, and that that really led to the phase I'm in now, which was the beginning of interviewing astronauts to discover what their experience was like. Um, and one thing I want to point out, just as a conclusion to all of this, I did not see the overview effect as extraordinary. My whole idea was, it's like if we look up at the moon, we don't find it surprising the moon is in the sky, you know, uh, and space settlers won't be surprised to see the earth in the sky. Um, and I thought of astronauts as proxies for space settlers, but there's a flaw in that reasoning in that all the astronauts were born on the earth, cosmonauts born on the earth, all space travelers are born on the earth. They don't stay very long in outer space. And most of them tell me it doesn't get ordinary to see the Earth out the window or in the sky. They always come back. We, we haven't entered that phase where the overview effect is the norm. And so I'm just excited about that as I was about phase one, which was talking to astronauts and confirming that something was happening uh, when they were out there. So for me, I'm, I'm sorry, just that that first wonder and realization of an infinity of possibilities at the age of 10, it doesn't change. It's still there. And one thing I've said is this is the greatest adventure of humanity's experience. How can you not be excited about it? Absolutely. I love that. And I, I, you know, I had a similar experience in, actually I was older, I was in my 20s. So my wife and, and family had gotten me a really nice telescope. So I'd been infatuated with this idea of space, but I, you know, you know me, I've, I've lived all over the world. I'm not, telescope doesn't fit in a backpack very well. <laughs> um, so I just never done it. Uh, anyway, I, I was able to, to get behind one and I just fell in love. I remember standing outside. I hate the cold and I, I got the telescope for Christmas and I was out there and like, you know, 10 degree weather in the snow, <laughs> looking through my telescope, just falling in love. 
and and feeling like oh my god we're we're on a giant rock you know hurling whatever 16,400 whatever miles an hour through space and 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 there's nothing between me and the moon or another planet or another star or and it, it's just you know air and particles and whatever there's no barrier there and I thought wow how how amazing how wondrous is that and and that really really gave me that deep-seated love for our universe not just earth and you know I've, and I've had my journey with understanding you know what it what does it mean to be planetary that the, even the film planetary had a big impact on my discussion with that it gave me some words to use which I appreciate uh, and I, I want to back up a little bit in or, or, or continue kind of where you're at in your discussion I guess in the your approach to the overview effect as a book and as a body of work and, and what it's been for so many since would you, uh, when you first take us back to when you first had the idea and said, okay, now, now you felt empowered, you know, by this discussion that you just had and saying, okay, maybe other people that aren't in the space race, you know, in a, in a very blatant way, sir, you know, as an astrophysicist or something, um, they could be involved. They could contribute to this beautiful thing. And I, I think it's an important thing to unpack. So you said, I could make a contribution. And then you, you know, there was a fire inside you, a little spark and something happened and here we are. So t tell us a little bit about that beginning of that journey and your thoughts of putting that together. I do want to share that because it's something I've tried to say whenever I give a talk is, hey, you know, when I was flying cross country that day, I didn't have any credentials I wasn't working for NASA. I didn't even have a doctorate. I wasn't a professor. Um, I had an experience, and I thought it was really important, and it changed my life totally. Uh, you know, on the plane, I remember writing down overview, overview effects, scribbling it out, starting to think about it. I remember afterward. I had been trained as a social scientist as an undergraduate and graduate student. So I thought, I need to interview lots and lots and lots of astronauts uh, to have it be scientifically and empirically valid. So I got in touch with NASA, and I told them I had to interview all the astronauts. And they thought that was really quite funny. And they said, well, they're quite busy. Uh, if you come to Houston, you can interview two. And I thought, well, that's not a very good sample size. I didn't say anything. I said, oh, thank you so much. I'll be there. And then whoever I talked to, and I owe a lot to this person, he said, you know, go interview retired astronauts. They can, You can interview as many as you like. We don't control them. So, oh, okay. That's great. So then... Um, Another person I owe a lot to is Joe Allen. Um, through another friend, um, Brian O'Leary, who's passed away, uh, I, I reached Joe Allen and asked if I could interview him for this book. And I was actually at work. <laughs> I was at work that day. And, you know, old-fashioned, there were no cell phones or anything like that. So... Uh, word came out, hey, Frank, somebody's on the phone for you. Oh, who is it? Joe Allen. Oh, I'm not ready. I ran to my desk. I had no idea what to say. You know, I, I interviewed Joe. He was so helpful. And he, he made this statement that has been quoted many times now. He said, uh, 
for all the reasons pro and con for going to the moon, no one ever said we should do it to look at the Earth. But that, in fact, may be the most important reason. But beyond that, he was encouraging. And I think I'd have to look back. I think he gave me the names of some other astronauts. And, uh, you know, that was really what what got me going and made me feel that the project was viable. But another thing that I would say to you uh, is anybody could do something like that, you know, and the whole idea of, of space exploration as a central project of humanity, which is how I see it, every crew member on Spaceship Earth is important. Everybody could make a contribution. They don't have to. I mean, so many people have said to me, I'd love to read the overview effect, but I'm not technical. I don't understand that kind of thing. And I say, I'm not technical. I don't really understand how rocket ships work. I mean, I kind of do, but it's really not that important to what I'm doing. And what everybody wants to add to it can be valuable. It's a human experience more than a technical one. But the thing I would say to you about the importance of it is, I think you know that I'm interested in a multiplicity of things, and I'm working on a bunch of different projects all the time. And uh, once I got this idea, I was different for about two or three years. I decided to do nothing but try to get my book published. And this is back in the day when getting a book published was hard. Now you can just put it on Kindle and you've got a book published. But in those days, you had to kind of get through the filter. You know, you had to get accepted and it was hard to do. And I decided this is what I'm doing. This is my mission. This is what I have to do. You know, I stopped going to parties. I stopped uh, doing anything that was distracting. I literally made a list of 200 publishers. You know, I started going through that list. I, I started, like any author, getting very nasty um, turndowns. Uh, one, of, one of the people who turned me down said, we do have standards for our books, and this book meets none of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very encouraging, is it? <laughs> yeah, hard to keep going. You've got nobody's standards. But anyway. How old were you at that time, Frank? Uh, 41, 42. Okay, cool. Well, it's inter- I just I turned forty one this weekend, so <laughs> it's I'm just I'm interested in the timeline there. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, interestingly, too, uh, I had written a novel when I was twenty five that was bought by Dell and bought as a film script, and I thought I was going to be a famous author when I was twenty five. Oh wow! And uh, it turned out that the film. Film people decided not to make the film, and Dell kind of lost interest in it. And so, 17 years later, I'm still trying to get published, right? Right. But uh, you know, the the thing I'm trying to get at is that this um, this experience, when I say it's bigger than me, that's my point. It was such a compelling. Uh, uh, experience and mission that I changed my way of doing things. 
Now, another interesting thing, another person who made a huge contribution uh, was a friend of mine named uh, Duncan. Uh, Duncan and I had known each other through various things, experiences and so on, and he asked me to have lunch with him and talk about his career. So I did, just being nice. And uh, halfway through the lunch, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I here? I'm not supposed to be helping Duncan with his career. I'm supposed to be getting published. So I didn't say that to him, but we wound down the lunch and he said, Frank, uh, you've been so kind. Can I help you? I said, well, all I care about, Duncan, is getting published. And then it dawned on me that he worked for Houghton Mifflin or had worked there. And he said, oh, I know somebody who might really be interested in the overview effect. His name is Larry Kessenick. I'll, I'll introduce you. <laughs> and uh, it was so funny because at that time I had written a proposal for the book. I had interviewed nine astronauts. Uh, I had a marketing plan. I really did everything I was supposed to do. Uh, Larry got it. He got in touch with me. He said, this is the first time I've ever seen anybody explain why we should be exploring outer space. I get it. I want to publish it. You know, two weeks later, he had an advance for me. And the rest is history, as they say. But this focused energy remained with me because that summer of 86 was the rainiest summer we ever had in Boston. And it was like Seattle. And everybody was bummed out and complaining. They couldn't go to the beach. They couldn't do anything. And I was happy as a clam because I call it writer's weather. Uh, you know, when it's raining, you don't really feel bad about being inside. <laughs> and I had a lot of writing to do. I guess the point of the story is when you have a mission, when you when you feel like you're uh, doing something that is for the greater good, you can accomplish a lot even without credentials or uh, the usual uh, elements that we think are necessary for success. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the importance of this work. And I, and I want to... I want to look at what you've done with overview effect, the ripple effect that that has caused, and then looking at your work with your your latest book, the the Cosma Hypothesis, which which you sent me the other day, and I'm halfway through, and I cannot put it down. As I was telling you, I'm enthralled with it, uh, and we'll we'll probably do another interview here and talk more just to unpack that specifically. But uh, in the meantime, let's talk just a little bit about why is this work important. Help us, help us understand a little bit about that or help our audience to understand uh, more about why the work of the overview effect and then, and then leading into the Cosmo hypothesis is important. And I, I want to read just a, a little bit here just from the uh, description of the Cosmo hypothesis. Why has the evolutionary process brought humanity to the brink of becoming a spacefaring species? And, and to look at us going to other planets and look at those concepts, I know that there's been a discussion for a long time kind of underneath things going on, you know, why, why do we need the space, you know, stuff? Why, why all this space stuff? Why go into other planets? Why, who cares? We've got things here on planet earth to worry about. We, you know, why aren't we worrying about this and this? 
you and I know that a lot of our inventions and things that, that make it easier for us to live in this planet have become from our spatial exploration, you know, think microwaves and tape and all kinds of things like that, that, that we kind of take for granted, not knowing that that came from our space exploration activities. So there's an underlying kind of element of value there, but there's something more. And I think what you've done for me, uh, you and some of the guys you've mentioned, even Mitchell and some of these other guys have in this idea of space philosophy. And I want to get into that here. It's made it to me, it's not just about like, what can we invent to make our life a little easier on earth? It's what, what does this tell us about who we are in our place in the universe? And I know you, you've talked a lot about that. Um, so let's, let's talk uh, some about that because you're not a man on a mission to show people what earth looks like from the moon or space. You're, you're on a mission, you know, for, for something far greater than that, to, that really speaks to who are we and why are we here? You know, and that's, that's a lot of why I do the, you know, the coaching work that I do and the, and the, uh, and this podcast is very much centered around that concept of who are we and why are we here? So talk to us a little bit about that. Well, let me focus on two things. One is uh, identity, and the other is the ne- the need for a new space philosophy. Um, uh, Ron Guerin, one of the astronauts I interviewed who spent a lot of time on the International Space Station, has used a terminology that goes something like, uh, we're living a lie. What he means by that is our experience of ourselves in the universe is that of our ancestors 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, even 500,000 years ago, um, we experience ourselves living on a stable platform with the heavens rotating above us. And that's not reality. The, the reality is more like, as you said, we're on this rock hurtling through the universe. Um, Bucky Fuller called it Spaceship Earth. Um, I've started to change my discussion of it. Uh, I say we're living on this first space settlement. Um, Steve Wolf, another space philosopher, has written a piece that really inspired me talking about we need to understand we're already space settlers because we've modified the Earth so dramatically. You know, it really is space settlement 1.0. Um, we've modified it dramatically for ourselves. But the astronauts are only... To say they are going into space is inaccurate because we're already in space. We've always been in space. We will never not be in space because the Earth is in space. What the astronauts have done is leave the Earth and look back and see that view and that's profoundly important because one of the aspects of spaceship earth is the idea that we're all astronauts on spaceship earth we're the crew and ron garen says there are no passengers you're all on the crew you know he's right and so what a profound difference that is in our perception of ourselves Uh, and how we ought to behave. And one of the big potential payoffs of the overview effect work would be if everyone saw themselves as crew members of Spaceship Earth. 
um, we would behave differently. We would have to. Uh, so that's one of the aspects of it. Another aspect, though, is a little broader than that even, which is another moment that contributed to my work was I was finishing up the overview effect shortly after the Challenger disaster uh, when it, when the shuttle blew up. And maybe three or four days after that event, uh, there was a television show, This Week with David Brinkley, and they had Isaac, Isaac Asimov on. And they had, um, uh, what's his name, Wolf, uh, who wrote The Right Stuff. Um, and uh, they were talking about it, and George Wills said, uh, uh, Mr. Wolf, um, have we been having rather banal reasons for exploring space, like nonstick frying pans? And, and uh, he said, uh, yes, George, you're actually right. Uh, our country has never had a philosophy of space exploration. And I, I was struck by that, and I said, yes, we don't really have a philosophy, an underlying philosophy guiding us. And I've been trying to develop a philosophy ever since. And so that's important because a philosophy shapes how you do things. It's not just an abstract um, concept. And I've pointed out to people before, people love Star Trek, generally, and they have an underlying philosophy behind what the Starship Enterprise crew members do. And the most famous aspect of it is the prime directive, non-interference in the evolution of other sentient species. And they actually have Jean-Luc Picard at one point say that, that the prime directive is not just a rule, it's a philosophy. You know, and I've said to people in talks, well, that may sound kind of straightforward. Of course, non-interference in the affairs of uh, sentient species. But what if the Europeans who came to North and South America had had a philosophy of non-interference? Thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> And, and their philosophy was the opposite. It was interfere like crazy mm-hmm. in everything. Um, and so the philosophy then informs what I call the human space program, which is as we move into the solar system, what is our philosophy? And it, what I'm proposing with the Cosmo hypothesis is that it be a balance of exploration and exploitation because we are going to exploit the solar system in some way it won't happen if we don't but we should have a balance and we should think ahead to some of these big issues like what if elon musk and his uh, community on mars discover primitive life now Carl Sagan said, if we discover primitive life on Mars, it should become off limits to human beings right then and there. You know, I'd love to have a chat between Carl Sagan and Elon Musk. I don't think they'd agree. (laughs) 
I think you might be right there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of both of them. (laughs) They have some conflicting (laughs) philosophies, yes. You know, I recently wrote a paper that I delivered at a Harvard seminar, uh, and it was basically asking, do planets have rights? Hmm. And I was serious about it, you know? I mean, we have expanded our notion of rights over a long, long period of time to include uh, marginalized people, animals, trees. Some people think the earth has rights. You know, do we have the right to terraform Mars? Does it have a right to be left alone? I just raise it as a question. But I, I tried to answer it from the point of view of universal evolution. And the Cosmo hypothesis, the best I've been able to come up with, is that the reason the universe has supported us to become what we are, which is a spacefaring species, is to bring life, intelligence, and self-awareness to larger and larger portions of the universe, or what I call cosma. And I don't know how to prove that's what it is, but I raise it as a question and I welcome others to say, no, 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 I can't, I can't abide that. You know, um, I don't think that's it. Uh, that's fine with me as long as you propose some alternative explanation, you know? Yeah, the, the discussion is important. It's like you, what you're doing is you're saying, we should, we should discuss this. It's important. And, and we shouldn't go forward without discussing it. And I see you as someone that is pivotal in uh, facilitating that, dis- that very important discussion. You know, it occurred to me recently, a, a big moment happened in human history, and it wasn't so long ago. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, decided not to have a Columbus Day celebration. They had Indigenous Peoples hmm. Day. Yes. Well, why did that happen? Did Columbus do something bad last year? Oh, <laughs> he, he's been dead for a long time. He didn't do anything. Yeah. Our consciousness has changed. And so we realize he was a great explorer, but he was also a great exploiter. I just raise a question for space advocates. You know, we admire Elon Musk and, and, and Jeff Bezos and everyone who's getting us out there, but... 500 years from now, how will we feel? It really depends on how we do it. And I don't want my descendants to look back on me and say, you know, he was part of something that I don't want to honor anymore. Um, It could happen. That's the hypothesis is looking at the bigger picture and thinking about our behavior in that in that context. And just one last thing, Jared, it may sound awfully ambitious for this to happen, but until really recently, and largely because of seeing the Earth from space, we just saw the Earth as this big, huge thing that we could exploit, or at least some human beings did, not all. I mean, indigenous people never saw the Earth that yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, but many, many of our ancestors did. And suddenly we're looking at the earth and saying, wait a minute, 
maybe we, uh, you know, can't do this anymore. So I think we could at least get to that point with the solar system because it concerns me that I think some people who are looking out at the solar system kind of see it as vast and, uh, you know, something that can be used up and we we can just keep on going from there. And that's a danger when we start realizing how infinite the universe is, is that we think we can behave badly in such a large environment. Absolutely. I, I love your uh, c- connecting this discussion to, you know, colonialization and the past and so on. Like, what if, what if they had been more cognizant and, and, and well, and then ultimately, hopefully, more intentional and deliberate in their ways of coming here and colonializing and, and uh, well, whether it be Africa or North America or South America, or whatever. I think that's an important perspective to keep in mind because we're essentially doing that out in space, right? We're saying we would like to go explore these areas and we've seen what our exploration looks like. Uh, unfortunately, it gets pretty dirty sometimes. Uh, and then having the conversation, very important, like what you just described with uh, Columbus Day, what changed? It wasn't Columbus. It was the fact that we are having a discussion about it now. And that has enlightened us to new uh, you know, concepts that we previously were unaware of you know, for various reasons. So I think that's, that's really, really important to, to facilitate these conversations. I mean, ultimately, I'm facilitating a conversation that I think is important on this podcast. Uh, and this is part of it. Uh, l- let's talk a- some about that. Uh, you know, on, on, on the show here, I talk a lot about indigenous wisdom. You know, we have these examples uh, throughout history of uh, societies like the Lakota that lived in peace for hundreds of years. And, and they lived in harmony with the land and with each other. And even their fighting was, was sort of uh, almost even humorous comparatively to what we have now, because it was, it was really just, a hey, we're going to do this and we're going to have a bit of a disagreement, but we're going to do it with respect. We're going to do it with honor. And we hope nobody dies. Uh, <laughs> um, no. and, and like, what a, what a wonderful way to go into battle, right? We see examples of this. There are examples of times that we've lived in more harmony. I look at society now as an activist and I say, okay, what, what, could, what principles are we bringing forward? You know, and then I hearken back to, to the Lakota principles and the Tao, you know, and, and, and some of these other things that you and I have talked about and the principles of Jesus and how Jesus walked the earth and, the, and the, the perspective that he was trying to give to us. He said, look, I've got a gift for you and it is a perspective. I hope you embrace it and don't destroy yourselves. Because I know you are you to be a, a spiritual man like myself. And we talk a lot about that, you know, on our own time. How has your, as you've gone on this journey and as you've been, you know, cognizant of your role in this discussion and, and what you're contributing to the discussion and the fact that you're contributing to even having a discussion at all, how does your own uh, spirituality and your, your philosophies in, in that regard uh, intertwine, if you will, with the overview effect in your, your, in your space philosophy? Um, interesting question. I'm not sure I have a very complete answer yet. Um, it's funny. Uh, I was sitting in church one day. I go to an Episcopal church, and the minister was talking about uh, the comment that Jesus made about, even as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. And uh, I was kind of to be honest, drifting, because I know that story. And the minister said, you know, there's a guy in our uh, congregation, Frank White, who's actually 
written about this with the overview effect um, because the uh, the astronauts they say we're all in this together and uh, we have to treat each other well and that's what Jesus was saying um, my point of saying this is I hadn't really thought of that in the sense that you know I have I have that knowledge from growing up in a Christian environment and then I have the overview effect knowledge. But in a way, I do think his point was very well taken um, in the sense that it, it seems to me that most spiritual traditions do talk about the value of everyone on the planet, the need to live in harmony with one another and with the planet. Um, and... Uh, I think that that awareness and that that viewpoint has has carried me through. And also, I very explicitly did feel when I first had the idea of the overview effect, and I wrote it in the book, that what people living in space permanently would know is what philosophers, systems theorists, and religious or spiritual teachers have been trying to explain to us, which is that everything is interconnected and interrelated. And that, of course, is very Buddhist, very Buddhist concept. Um, you know, that is a place for spirituality and the overview effect idea come together in realizing the connectedness and um, oneness of everything, uh, you know, and I was uh, I was watching a TV program just the other day about the universe, and it was basically scientific in its presentation. But they did have one um, episode, and it was called "God and the Universe," and it was about uh, the debate between theologians and scientists, you know, do we need a creator to have this creation or can this creation emerge from nothing? It was fascinating, but without resolving that question, they did emphasize both scientists and theologians did see the connectedness of everything in the universe, the, uh, the reality that everything does have, everything is whole. And um, one of the aspects of what the astronauts talked to me about that came up a lot was the realization that we live, that the Earth is a whole system, we're part of it. And then the Earth is a part of yet another system, the solar system. And the solar system is part of yet another whole system. <laughs> you know, the galaxy and so on, you know, this kind of increasing sense of whole and part. And when you ask what is common to most religions or spiritual practices, it's a real realization of being part of something greater. You're a part of a whole. And I don't really know if whole and holy come from the same root, but that that feeling of 
yourself being part of something larger seems to me to be an aspect of the overview experience and also an aspect of spiritual experience. Absolutely. And that's very congruent with my experience of all of this with, with you and your work as well. And that, I, I remember reading, so, so I had this, I came across this philosophy of Ubuntu, uh, which uh, has been a big philosophy in, in my life uh, about our interconnectedness and so on. And that was congruent, obviously, with the teachings of Jesus and so on. I think you and I have talked a little bit about that. Um, ultimately, what it does is it speaks to our interconnectedness. You know, I am who I am because of who we all are, is the South African philosophy uh, of Ubuntu. And, you know, there's lots of layers in that discussion. But suffice it to say, I, I was, that was kind of my theme. You know, I was the Ubuntu guy. And I was talking about that forever, I did, you know, for 15, 20 years. And in the midst of that, I found your work with the overview effect. And then again, the film overview and then planetary and, and so on and all of our continued discussions. So with that, it added an element for me into my discussion about interconnectedness that was really all just about humans. And then, you know, as I matured in that understanding, I recognized some of the more animistic elements of that, like the, the uh, American Indians, you know, in their animism, they see everything as having spirit. And then that kind of lends itself to the discussion of our interconnectedness as well. But then when I heard about the overview effect and I hear about these astronauts going out and the first thing they looked at when they looked or thought of when they looked back at the earth was there's no borders. There's no races. There's no nothing. And that, oh man, I remember I, 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 when I, it was actually when I saw the film, you know, the visual stuff had a, had a big impact on me. And, and I felt like I was, I was very emotional, suffice it to say, in my response to that and just thinking, this is beautiful. And this opened up, uh, it sort of gave words maybe to it and, and brought it to life even more real in my life. Uh, from the, the philosophies of Carl Sagan that in my mind were beautiful, yet still a bit ethereal. And, and your work kind of brought it all home uh, for me. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, so that there is this innate uh, element of interconnectedness, I think, in all of the work that you do. And my philosophy as an activist has always been, um, even since I was young, that if I can help people to revere and I mean that in the real sense of the word revere, not just to understand or, or appreciate it, but to revere our innate interconnectedness. You know, how can we hurt other people? How can we hurt the earth? How can we hurt another planet, you know, for that matter? And, and all of this speaks into the same philosophy that you're talking about in this overview philosophy. Um, I think our, I, I feel like rather than fighting the symptoms, which I spend a lot of my life doing, you know, poverty and war and trafficking, all the horrible things, even global warming, um, those are symptoms of a, of a skewed perspective and a perspective that is not rooted in, our, in, a, in a reverence for our interconnectedness. So when I look at work like what you're doing and some of these other guys that you've mentioned, you're you're making that real in our lives with your with your this conversation that you're holding is is making that uh, making it real and relevant i think relevant is another another important word here so i yeah i really appreciate how how your your work is helping people like myself even that's so committed to the cause you're you're inspiring me even more to recognize our and, and always remember our interconnectedness to things and I, i'm really grateful for the, for the investment you've made in our lives in that regard 
Well, you know, one one of the things you're saying uh, is really a big part of what I learned in talking to astronauts is that you can't really have an understanding of self without an understanding of other. That's your Ubuntu uh, um, philosophy. Yes. What is your other, right? What is your other? So for many, I think everyone enjoys feeling part of something larger than themselves. And for many humans, it's the tribe. And there's nothing wrong with that. I play softball on a team, uh, a Harvard team, and I love my tribe. And we go out there and we battle. We hope nobody dies, like you said. <laughs> we battle other, those other people, all of, all of whom, everybody's from Harvard. Everybody works for Harvard. But we divide into tribes, right? And we battle on the softball field. And then it's over and we're part of the same tribe. So... Um, the thing is that what we're trying to do is show the largest tribe is humanity, and maybe it's even larger than that. Um, and I'm actually working with a brilliant uh, uh, writer, Dan Shapiro, who teaches at Harvard, and he's written a book on the tribes effect. And he contrasts the tribes effect with the overview effect. Um, and He's done some profound work on that, and I think the goal should be not to get rid of tribes, but to understand after the battle, oh, you know, we're all part of humanity. And um, it's interesting, too, that shift in identity, because the astronauts talk about it. When I first found myself in orbit, I looked for home. I looked for Houston. Oh, there's Houston. And then the next orbit, oh, where's America? Uh, oh, there's, there's North America. And then I started looking, and I was, I was anticipating Africa coming up. And, you know, Rusty Schreikert is the most profound writer about this or speaker about this. And then, then I realized, you know, my identity was with all of it, the whole Earth. Well... You know, that is profound, and it is a description of the overview effect because Rusty Schweikert knew who he was, but he, the other was something fairly contained until he went into orbit, and then it became very expansive. You have uh, a couple of works coming out right now. Uh, and I want to talk about that as we kind of come to a close here. And there is a, yeah, and there's, there's one sort of last question I want to ask you as well. Why don't I ask you that? And then we'll, we'll get into some of the works that you've got now where people can connect with you. Um, I believe that all of us are influencing others, right? We're, we're all influencing at some level and we're, you know, certainly some more than others. And some uh, are very deliberate about that influence and some are not. And I think we're, we're influencing either way, right? We, we certainly know that as parents, right? You have a, a tremendous platform of influence. And uh, I think I know some of the answers to this question here, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it specifically. What would you say is your, uh, when it comes to, you understand that you're going to influence people. You're a deliberate man, and you care about humanity, and you care about how you influence people. 
What would you say, you know, at the end of the day is the influence you hope to have on in other people's lives? Well, I think it's at two levels, one individual, the other social. You know, at the individual level, I want to encourage everyone to make a contribution, large or small, and not to feel that if you can't make an, a huge contribution, there's no point in trying. I mean, as you pointed out, we're all influencing people all the time. And I think to set out consciously to be a positive influence is a wonderful thing. Um, and I just want to encourage everyone listening to look at your life. And if there's something you've been wanting to do or offer, don't don't feel like you can't do it. Probably the only person holding you back is yourself. Um, and you never know how influential you might be either. I, I spent many years feeling like I had failed in my mission, Jared. You know, I thought the interview, I wanted that book to start a revolution right then and there. Well, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't start a revolution right then and there. It's beginning, I think, to have that happen. But, you know, we also have to credit the people that made Overview and Planetary. And we have to credit the Overview Institute and a lot of other people who are helping it to happen. So, you know, that's one influence that I'd like to have. And the other influence is social. Uh, I do believe I do believe humanity has been brought to this point uh, in order to make a larger contribution. But I don't think it's guaranteed. I think we're at a hinge point of history right now. Um, first of all, to preserve the Earth and to improve life on Earth for everyone on the Earth. And then secondly, to, to do a better job in the solar system uh, so that we don't have to run backward and correct all the mistakes we've made. And, you know... Uh, you know, we don't we don't have to make all those mistakes. And the whole point of the human space program project is to have the debate now with foresight rather than as we're doing with Columbus with hindsight. Absolutely. That I mean that's the art of war. It it's it the Sun Tzu's, you know, philosophy on that was, hey, connect with people you know, understand their values and what drives them and understand, you know, what's motivating them. Align yourself in some way with that and figure out how to win the battle without ever having to have a fight. If you fought, you are, if you have to have a fight, a war, you've already lost. That was what a lot of people didn't realize about Sun Tzu. He wasn't just saying like, how do you do war? Well, <laughs> he was saying, how, how do you live well in a way that you don't have to war? Uh, you know, and, and I think that's, relevant here too it's like if we could have the intention now if we if we were diligent enough to set the intention now what we actually want this to look like and and the the outcome that we want that could be magical and you're right man so so many times in the past we haven't we just said let's go explore and and you know annihilate an entire race <laughs> unfortunately which we saw in north america south america so 
And even, you know, I did, I lived in 10 years in Africa and I, I saw what colonialism did there. And I remember when I, when I was leaving, I, I said, I wish that all of the corporations and the nonprofits, the NGOs and everything would just leave Africa alone. They can figure this out. And there's something beautiful here that we're squelching and destroying just by our presence, not to mention the way that business works around the world, which keeps Africa crippled. We could change the way we do business in the United States. Africa could improve without us ever stepping foot on African soil. Um, so these are things that we recognize now, but had no idea when we just went in and infiltrated and started taking and taking. So, man, I, I think it's such an important perspective. Well, we're, we're coming to a close here, and we'll, we'll certainly do another, another round here, you and I, I'm sure, uh, to, to unpack some of these philosophies more. But I, I want to make sure that people do understand how to get it connected with you to, and to be inspired by you as I have. Uh, I know you have uh, the Cosmo Hypothesis, which is out now, and it's on uh, Audible, too, for you Audible people like myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to it. Uh, and then the uh, the singular what is it the neo singularity is here. Uh, that's yeah. your your other book that's out as well. Talk to me a little bit about that one because that, that's one we haven't we haven't talked about. Yeah, well, one of the ideas I develop in the overview effect and also in Cosmo Hypothesis is the idea that one thing humans do very well is create what I call overview systems, and an overview system can consist of a planet. Um, of life, uh, living systems, and human systems, but also there's something else we are creating now, and that's a techno system. Mm -hmm. And we have to also, as we're doing all of this examination of what we're up to, we have to look at the fact we've created this worldwide system of technology that also brings us together. But at this point, is bringing forth perhaps a new sentient life form, which is uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, we're having a lot of trouble figuring out exactly what we've created here. Um, and just briefly, what I would say is I've, I've just published the first volume of this book, and I am bouncing off of the classic The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil and he wrote that there may come a time in the future when artificial general intelligence will appear and then create a super intelligence which will essentially make humanity obsolete and a lot of AI work is looking at will that happen in 2030, 2045, 2050 when will the singularity occur? And I started writing this book asking myself, when will the singularity occur? But I realized that something similar to what we're concerned about has already occurred. We have artificial intelligence becoming more, impo more important to us to the point where if we were to decide to get rid of it, I'm not sure our society as it's currently constituted would survive. And so many of the concerns we have about artificial intelligence in the future are right in front of us today. And that's what I call the neo-singularity. You know, it's not quite the singularity, but it's a variant on it. 
So I'm urging people to look at what is happening today. And also, going back to your point, we don't have to let artificial intelligence be a threat. It can be a partner in exploring the universe, uh, in the central project of exploring the universe. So that probably doesn't do justice to the uh, book, but it gives you a little pricey of what's in it. That's great. The other good news is it's about a third as long as the overview effect. <laughs> right on. <laughs> it will also be on Audible very soon. Okay, great. Excellent. Well, Frank, I've, I've enjoyed this, and it's it's brought up a whole other line of questioning too, which we can get into. But I I appreciate you you being on the show, and I. Yeah, I, I, some of your messages, even you know, I've experienced them in my own way. But it's it's great to hear you articulate kind of your intention behind those things. It's, it's really beautiful, and I, I see your life as you know, and your work has made a tremendous impact on my life, and certainly lots and lots and lots of others. Um, I come across people in my discussions all the time that were inspired by you as well, and uh, you've inspired us to ask these deeper questions about who we are and why we're here, and to uh, understand. You know, our, our interconnectedness in the way that it, how we impact each other, how we impact the universe, you know, are we colonizing space? Is it space colonizing, you know, us, you know, and all those kinds of discussions back and forth that I think are just important. And, and we, we get so caught up in our day to day stuff that we forget about this greater thing that's happening and in, in, in our, uh, our relationship to that and to the universe. And I like the idea of us being crew members of Spaceship Earth, not just passengers. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and also speaks to our responsibility in the matter, right? Uh, when, we, when we know our roles, uh, we, can, we can do them well. When we don't know our roles, I think that's when we get chaos. Uh, to recognize that we are a, a crew member, not just a passive passenger, uh, makes that, that's an important difference in the discussion and in, in the perspective. I think all of this is profoundly important in our understanding of our interconnectedness and, and, and my hope that we, we sort of, we bolster more reverence of our interconnectedness and as an effort to live in a more harmonious world. So thank you for inspiring us and challenging us to live in this deeper connection with one another and the cosmos. It's been a pleasure to have you on, Frank. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jared. Thanks for what you're doing as a crew member of Spaceship Earth. Thanks so much for holding this space for wonder and wisdom with us today. If you appreciate this discussion, I hope you'll share it widely and go and rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps a lot and helps us amplify this message. Until next time, I wish you peace on your journey. May you always align with love and let your life speak. Itakuyeoyasi. The Noetic theme music is provided by Human Suits from their original soundtrack for the documentary Planetary. Check them out and download their music at humansuits.bandcamp.com.